Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. Awesome to see so many of you here in the building. And uh, I know um, in previous seasons, pre-COVID, we, a bunch of us parked across the street, and we may have to get back to that again, but that's a great problem to have. I want to say hello to everybody who's uh, on our online campus. I want to say hello to those of you in our parent viewing areas. That's a great option if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. So welcome, and uh, we're in week two of this series that we kicked off last week called God's at War. I want I want to encourage you, if you missed last week, go back and check that out. And uh, I recently watched a, um, a documentary uh, about uh, an amusement park that opened, and it's a fascinating documentary. It opened in New Jersey in 1978, uh, and this park was called Action Park. Action Park, if you've ever heard of this, uh, it's pretty fascinating. The documentary is actually called Class Action Park because it was sued so many times. Uh, it's amazing. Somebody, oh, you, have you been there? So has somebody actually been there and survived? That's amazing. Uh, it was started by a shady Wall Street business guy who did this, and he had like total disdain for any rules or uh, didn't believe in insurance. So to get around the fact that you have to have insurance, he actually started his own insurance company so that he could keep the park open and claim that he had insurance. And uh, the park was basically run by teenagers. Uh, the, in fact, many of the rides at the park were not built by engineers. They were actually just built by people who worked there who thought, dude, this would be awesome. <laughs> and so then they just built it, and then that became a ride. It's amazing. And as you can imagine, nobody would insure them. In fact, there were so many people regularly injured at the park that at a certain point, the park invested in two of their own ambulances to have on site because they were taking between five and ten people to the hospital every day. That's crazy, right? Uh, one of the first things that uh, they had, one of the first rides they had was this thing called Cannonball Loop. Check this out. Clearly not designed by engineers, right? Absolutely amazing. In fact, it, it's funny because uh, look at the bottom of this thing. They just thought, dude, we'll put a tarp out there for people and everybody will be fine. What could go wrong here? People would often get stuck in this ride if you were too light and you couldn't make the full loop, or if you were too heavy and you got stuck in the loop. And so their solution to this was they actually just built a trap door in the top of the loop. So it's like, hey, we'll just, you'll just fall out and that will solve that problem. In fact, this ride was so violent uh, going down and going through that loop that regularly people lost their teeth on this ride from smacking their heads into the sides of the ride. Unbelievable. They also had an alpine slide. Now, these are pretty cool. I've been on one of these before. Uh, the problem, though, is that since this was not engineered by a professional, it didn't have the appropriate banking. It didn't have the appropriate sides. Uh, this, this, it was too steep. The, the curves were way too sharp. And so routinely, people would fly off the edge of this thing into the woods, concussions, broken arms, Absolutely astonishing, just hitting trees and breaking bones. Uh, they had a go-kart track. This is awesome. This go-kart track, uh, again, didn't have, normally you go to a go-kart track and it's got like tires all around it marking the course or uh, haystacks or something that, you know, you can't get off course. This had no boundaries. So routinely people would just take the car and drive it all over the place. And because it was totally run by teenagers, they let them. And they just drove these things everywhere. They also had a ski lift. 
to bring you up to the alpine slide and then to just take you around the park. And uh, there was no safety on this thing, so people would goof around. Routinely, they would drop objects down onto other guests at the park. People often fell off of the, the ski lift. Uh, it was chaos. And this park just became known for chaos and danger. Uh, fights would break out regularly. People obviously would often be injured, uh, broken arms and concussions. And this is fascinating, many deaths. Not one or two, which is one or two deaths too many for an amusement park. Many deaths. It's absolutely crazy. But here's the, here's the upside. You had total freedom. Good news. Do whatever you want. And you could do whatever you wanted to do, but the cost of that unconstrained freedom eventually put the park out of business. And the reason I bring that up is there is just something in us as human beings, isn't there? There's something in you. I know there's something in me that just resists anything that tries to constrain my freedom. Any type of rule, any type of outside boundary that someone attempts to put on me, I kind of resist that. I kind of kick against that. We want to be the masters of our own lives, don't we? But Action Park and our own experiences would suggest and remind us that doing whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it, most often leads to pain and heartache and regret. And uh, we, we think we want freedom, but ultimately a lot of the things that we chase to bring us freedom actually enslave us, actually imprison us actually just lead to regret and pain and heartache. And so during this series, we're reminding ourselves that there is one Lord. There's one God in our life, and He wants to be first in our lives. And here's why. It's because when He's first, everything else falls into alignment. When we put God first, the other areas of our lives fall into alignment because He's the one who created us. And when we try to put anything else ahead of God, it almost always leads to us creating some false gods out of things that uh, we think are going to bring us what can only be found in God. I love the way Tim Keller describes this. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor and an author and a theologian, and uh, he writes about this idea that these things that we think will bring us what we long for, they actually become idols in our life. We talked about this last week. Again, if you missed last week, check that out. But idols, he says, are this. It's anything more important to you than God anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And I love that last line. It's such a clear descriptor because idols are really these things that we become devoted to so that we can uh, replace something that we should be finding in God. And God offers it to us, but uh, we just don't trust that God's going to come through. We don't trust deep down, it's, it's our trust structures, that God is actually going to deliver on this thing that he says we can find in him. And so instead, we try to take matters into our own hands, and we try to extract that out of these other things. And when we do that, we end up creating an idol out of these things. In other words, I'd say it this way. We claim Jesus is Lord, but we have other functional gods. Functional gods. Uh, there's a section in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's a historical document, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and it's basically the, the records of the kings of the nations of Israel and Judah. And in it, it's describing how these foreigners have moved into uh, the nation of Israel, and it describes who they are and how they live. And this is this description of them. It says this, Though they worshipped the Lord, they continued to follow their own gods according to the religious customs of the nations from which they came. 
So it wasn't that they didn't want to worship God. They wanted to worship God and their gods. They wanted to do both. And I think it's a very fitting description of our approach to worshiping God Oftentimes today, it's tempting for us to do the same thing. It's very easy for us to say, Jesus is Lord, while at the same time, we continue to worship other functional gods in our lives. And maybe that isn't the term that we would use, but essentially, from a functional standpoint, that's what we do. That's the temptation for us. And it looks different today because we're not setting up a, a temple. We, we don't have a, a shrine with maybe, uh, you know, statues of gold and silver and bronze that we bow down to. But remember, where we get messed up is in our trust structures. In who or in what do I actually put my trust to give me what I need in life? And these people were hedging their bets. They're saying, we're going to worship God, but we're also going to worship these other idols as well, just in case. Just in case the God of Israel doesn't come through, we've got these other gods, and we're kind of, we're kind of holding on to both. We want to hedge our bets. And while they may have set up a temple with different idols, the reality is, though we don't often use this language, we have our own temples. They just look different. And the gods that we're going to look at today could be described as the gods that we set up in the temple of power because we, we think if we worship these gods, we will have more control over our own lives. We will have more freedom in our lives. And that's what we want. We want to be the master of our own destiny. And so today I want to just look at three functional gods that we are tempted to worship, that we're tempted to give our attention, our devotion to, that we sacrifice for. And the first one is this, the God of success. The God of success. So easy for us, especially as 21st century Americans, so easy for us to chase this God. Because never before in human history have so many people been able to uh, identify and define what success is for them and then actually chase it and achieve it. We live in an incredible era in human history. And to live in the nation that we live in, in the time that we live, it's absolutely uh, opportunistic for us. It's, it's set up for us to chase the God of success and to bow down to and worship the God of success. And it's easy for us to think, man, if I could just accomplish this, that would be amazing. If I could just, if I could just reach this level of accomplishments, if I could, if I could, we kind of have this definition of what success looks like in our mind. And if that happens, man, that, that would be great. And so we give our time and energy, focus, resources, and we sacrifice so that we can experience success, whatever that is. But we aren't the first people to deal with this. In fact, Jesus met a man who was incredibly successful. And we find this story in Mark chapter 10. It says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the way that this is interpreted, if you get down to this question, he says, what must I do? Like, I know there's something I can do to inherit eternal life. And basically, the way that's interpreted is, God, what can I do to earn it? Like, I, I've got a lot going on in my life, and, and I've, I've accomplished a lot, but now this is the last, you know, box that I need to check. So what do I need to do so that I can get eternal life? And it's very transactional for him. And just Jesus responds, you know the commandments. And he goes back to the Ten Commandments, something this young man would have known. He says, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. In other words, uh, yeah, check, check, check. Got it. Done that. Been there. Bought the t-shirt. 
I've, I've got it. So this is good news for this young man. He, he's going, this is fantastic. I've done all of these things since I was young. And I still continue to do those things. So you're telling me I'm in. I've earned it. I've already done all the stuff. I've checked all the boxes. I'm, I'm successful. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this time, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Now, it's important to note this isn't Jesus' prescriptive uh, way of behavior for everyone. So the message is like, what was church about today? He's like, well, I got to go home and sell everything and give it away. And I guess we're all going to move into a commune or something. I don't know. There are, there are interactions that Jesus has with a lot of rich people, and this is the only time where we, actually is telling, where we actually see him telling someone, sell everything and come and follow me. He has an interaction with a guy named Zacchaeus who's incredibly rich, and never once does he tell him to sell everything. And so this isn't like a prescriptive thing. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, sell everything you have and then follow Jesus. This is actually Jesus targeting what he knew was first place in the heart of this young man. Notice he had all the commandments that he had kept since he was young. He just couldn't figure out how to keep the first one. Don't have any other gods before me. And his success was his God. Functionally speaking, success was the functional God in his life. Now, he probably never said it. He probably said, no, I worship God. I worship the God of Israel. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, you know, as a Jewish, first century Jewish man, he probably said, this is how I live my life. But functionally speaking what he actually gave his devotion to, what he actually gave his heart to, what he actually gave his worship to, what he sacrificed for was success. And success is something that many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will worship as well. Sociologists tell us that it's not, it's not just money. Money is one of the ways that we keep score and how we define success. And so for some people, that could be a category that falls into this. But success is bigger than that. It's, in our culture, sociologists tell us it defines success as the prestige that comes from attaining an elevated social status. So it's, not, it's about clout. It's about influence. It's about uh, recognition and respect. It's about having the right seat at the table, having the right space in the parking lot, having the right title on the business card. Right? It's, it's about the right clothes in the closet and getting that watch or the trophy or the promotion or the award. It's about finding out how the score is kept and then keeping score. That's what the God of success is. And here's what this God promises. Here's why it's so easy for us to sort of chase this God. is because this God promises significance. And every one of these things, every one of these gods that we're tempted to put before God before Jesus, they promise us something that we long for. And they're actually things that God promises to give us as well. It's just that deep down, we don't trust that God's going to come through. It's about these trust structures. And, and deep down, we go, God, I, I want to trust that you're going to come through. But here I have the opportunity to take matters into my own hands. And if I chase success, I'll feel significant. And in our longing for significance, our desire to matter, we forget we were created by the God of the universe. And there is nothing that brings more significance to our lives than that. When we try to find significance in something other than God, we end up becoming a slave to that thing. Functionally speaking, we chase it, we go after it, we sacrifice for it. And yet, there really isn't a word for success in the Scriptures. 
Really, the closest word that we have is blessed. In fact, we still associate those two words together. If someone says to you, man, I really, really love your home, you don't say, oh, thanks, I've been really successful. (laughs) What do you say? You go, thanks, I've been blessed. Because we associate those words so closely. And yet, here's what Jesus said. Here's how he uses the word blessed. He doesn't say blessed are those who are successful. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, do you want to know what God views as success? Do you want to know in God's kingdom what it looks like to be successful, to to experience significance? Do you want to know where that comes from? He says, in God's kingdom, in God's eyes, it's those who are very, very aware that they cannot do anything to earn it on their own. It's those who are very, very, very aware that their significance comes from him and not from achievement, the success, uh, accomplishing something. Blessed are those who are humble enough to admit they cannot do it on their own. They recognize their need for God. He goes, man, those, those are the people that are going to find significance. They find that they matter. They're going to recognize, I'm a child of God. And I find significance in that and not some elevated social status or influence or clout or any of that. But we are tempted to do that. Here's another God that we're tempted to worship. And this is just helpful for us to be aware. The God of achievement. The God of achievement. Uh, This God is very subtle because it just calls us to do more. It it just accomplish more. And and there, there are some of us who begin to worship the God of achievement because it feels good to accomplish things, to get things done, to be known as a person of action, a go getter. Man, that guy. He's a real go-getter. Man, she is a real go-getter. And that feels good, and it feels good to us to accomplish and accomplish and check another thing off and get more done. In fact, there was a woman in the Scriptures named Martha who was like that. In Luke chapter 10, it says, As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed her into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and said, It's not fair. That's a paraphrase. She says this, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Now, this is an anomaly because I don't think siblings ever go to their parents and say it's not fair. It never happens in our house, probably never with you. So this is probably just a one-off But she goes to Jesus and she goes, tell her to come and help me. This is not fair. And the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. Martha is in the presence of Jesus. Martha has the rare opportunity to experience the presence of Jesus face to face. And yet she is more consumed with doing for Jesus, and she actually misses out on being with Jesus. She is so consumed with doing for that she can't actually stop and be with. And there's a subtle trap in this because it's very easy for us to be consumed with what we do and what we accomplish, and if we're not careful, that can actually become our God. Achievement becomes our God, where we can, man, I'm just, I'm getting stuff done, I'm getting stuff done, I'm getting stuff done. Have you ever noticed how we elevate busyness in our society? Hey, man, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm busy. I'm busy. You busy? Yeah, busy. It's a good thing. I'm a good busy. And we have just elevated business. It's like, man, we're just just getting stuff done. We're people of action. 
We worship the Lord, but we also hold on to this God of achievement in whose land we dwell. And here's what this God promises. This God promises satisfaction. Satisfaction. This God promises, man, if you'll sacrifice for it and if you'll worship it, you will feel satisfied. But here's the problem. It never delivers on that promise. There's always going to be one more thing you should have done, one more thing you should have accomplished. There's always going to be one more person to respond to, one more sales call to make, one more phone call to make, one more email to respond to. There's always going to be one more hill to tackle, one more phone call, one more, you know, fill in the blank. And there's always going to be somebody more successful than you. And there's always going to be another thing to do. And it's just the finish line keeps moving. And here's how this impacts our relationships. Uh, a couple of things start to happen. When we worship the God of achievement, we develop a constant frustration for those around us, those people who just aren't getting it done in our eyes. We develop this constant frustration with them. And this is how Martha felt about Mary. She's frustrated with her. She's not getting it done. And we also... Another sort of side effect of this when we worship the God of achievement is we develop a constant discontentment with ourselves. I could have done more. I could have done more. I could have, I could have, I could have accomplished a little bit more. There's just a little bit more I could have done. And we actually keep moving the finish line on ourselves. But here's the reality. Satisfaction in life only comes from Jesus. It only comes from Jesus. He's the only one who can actually deliver on that promise. And so, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, this is what Jesus says. It's so contrary to the way that we live, especially in this culture. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, a a yoke is what a farmer would use to put on the necks of a a pair of oxen, a team of oxen, to, to make sure they could plow a field. And they would put that on there for a couple of reasons. One, they want to make sure that they're not moving at different paces. Because when they're moving at different paces, not only does it, you know, twist and turn the plow, but when they move together at the same pace, it actually harnesses their collective power. It's not one plus one. It's actually, it multiplies the power of the team. And so they're able to do a lot more when they're moving at the same pace. The yoke is placed on them to make sure that they do that. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to, I want you to take my yoke upon you. I want you to hitch yourself up to me. I want you to move at my pace. I, I want you to, to harness the collective power that comes when you do things the way that I want you to do things. And when you respond to me and you take my yoke upon you and you move with me and you move in lockstep with me, he wants us to find our satisfaction in life in him and not in chasing and striving to just do more, do more, do more, accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. And how many times have we felt like that? Like, I just gotta, okay, I just, man. And then what happens? You do it and do you feel like, <sighs> nope, because you wake up the next day and there's another thing to do. That God will never satisfy. And Jesus says, look, you want to find rest for yourself. You want to find satisfaction? You find that in me. You, you, you take my yoke upon you. It is light, and the burden that I give you is light, and you will find rest for your soul. And the only word that I know to describe that is just satisfaction. We cannot find it in the God of achievement. Here's another God that we're tempted to worship, the God of money. 
All right, time out. Okay, you talked about budgeting and stuff two weeks ago. This is a lot, okay? You've hit your quota there, preacher man. This is one we're all very familiar with. It's very tempting for us to worship this God and, and to worship the God of money. And I'll be honest with you. Uh, I don't think there's a person in this room who's free from this. If we're honest, this is one we battle all the time. Okay, if we're honest with ourselves, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest here. This is, a, this is a struggle. And here's why. We wouldn't put it in these terms. We wouldn't say, oh, I worship the God of money. But functionally, that is where many of us land. And this is so difficult to resist, especially in a culture where it's, we're the most prosperous nation that's ever been in the history of the world. Mark Twain wrote this, some men worship rank. Some worship heroes, some worship power, some worship God, and over these ideals they dispute and cannot unite. But they all worship money. It's fascinating. Uh, uh, Kyle Eidelman wrote this. Uh, he's a pastor in Kentucky. He says, sometimes we hear rich people say things like, money doesn't make you happy. But most of us think they all flew first class to some exotic destination where they got together and agreed to say that to make the rest of us feel better. And we've heard that phrase, right? Well, money doesn't make you happy. And usually our uh, maybe, uh, you know, unpronounced thought afterwards is like, well, I'd be willing to give it a shot. I'll be the subject in that case study, you know. We pay lip service to the idea that money isn't important. Money's not my God, but we spend our time, where we spend our time and what we pursue seem to reveal our true belief around money. And we're not the first ones to wrestle with this. It's something that has been vying for our attention, for our affection, for our worship, for our devotion for thousands of years. And Jesus actually addresses it directly many, many, many times. In fact, over half of the parables that Jesus talks about have to deal with money. Because I think Jesus knows money is one of those things in it's just human nature that has a, a grip on our hearts. And so he writes this in Luke chapter 12, or he's speaking to a crowd, and Luke writes this for us. Beware, this is Jesus talking, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And that's really good for us to hear. Life is not measured by how much you own. If only we understood that better as Americans. Because here's the temptation for us. We actually spend money that we don't have on things that we don't need to impress people that we don't know. That's crazy. And Jesus says, beware, guard yourself against every type of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Isn't that sad? What a sad story, right? Here it is, a rich man, he owned so much stuff that his storage bin was full. And he became sad. Cue the violin music. My bank is so full. I got the notice you never want to get from your bank. Hey, we have reached the maximum amount that we can federally insure, and you can no longer put any more money into your savings account. You're going to have to open a different account at a different bank. <sighs> what a hassle. Can you imagine if you brought that prayer request to your small group this week? Guys, <sighs> Can you pray for me? I mean, it's just, I mean, I got the notice from Wells Fargo and they said, I can't, I literally can't put any more in and now I got to go open an account at a different bank and I mean, the chaos, I'm in a different tax bracket now. Please pray for me. <laughs> Could you imagine that? And that's what's going on here. 
And, and Jesus says, this is this man. He's just like, oh, what am I going to do? My barns are all full. Jesus continues the story. Then he said, this is the man in the story, he says, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods, and I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night, and then who will get everything you worked for? It's fascinating because here's what the guy thought. My goal is to make sure that I have a a lot more money so that when I run out of time, I still have money left over. What he didn't realize is he's going to run out of time before he ran out of money. And this isn't a a, a true story. This is a fictional tale that Jesus is telling to prove a point. And it's, it's amazing. Jesus follows this up with this statement. He says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. So Jesus says, this guy's a fool, not because he had a lot. It's because he never invested it. So here's the truth. When you're born, you're born with nothing. And when you die, you take nothing with you. All you can do is invest in things that have eternal significance while it's in your hands. So it's never about more. It's always about management. It's never about more. It's always about how do I manage whatever I have while it's in my hands. Because I didn't have it in my hands when I was born. I'm not taking it with me, but I can send it on ahead by investing in things that have eternal significance. But if I take, if I, if I make this assumption that it's all for me to consume while it's mine, what happens is the, the net gain at the end of my life is zero because I, I didn't bring any of it with me. I wasn't born with any of it. I'm not taking any of it with me, and I didn't send any of it on ahead. So now the net gain at the end of it is zero. He goes, then who will get everything you worked for? And the answer is somebody else. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. This is not a story about God punishing a guy for being rich. It's not about that at all. It's a story about God being grieved by greed. It's a story about a man letting money be his God. But let's be honest. That's a functional God for a lot of us. We would never say, I worship money, but we hold on to it. And here's why, and I get it. This is why it's so tempting. It's something that we battle all the time as human beings. This God promises security. This God promises security. Just like the rich fool, we think if we have enough stored up, we won't have any more worries. God, I know, I know I'm supposed to trust you for everything, but... The truth is, I have the opportunity right now to take matters into my own hands. I know I'm supposed to trust you to be the source of my security, but this is actually in my ability to control. And when we look to money to find security, it becomes our God. Because that's where we end up putting our hope and putting our dependence, and we end up worshiping money. And prayer becomes a nice distraction, but it's not necessary because we have enough money to meet all of our own needs. So I don't really have to rely on God because I can rely on money. And and very subtly what we do is we substitute the God of money. We find our security in having enough as opposed to finding our security in God. We begin to worship the provision instead of the provider. It's a dangerous way to live. And here's why. The God of money is going to let you down somewhere. It doesn't matter how much you have in your 401k. It doesn't matter how much you have in your savings account. It can all go away really quickly. And there's been many years that have taught us that. 
And the truth is, the Apostle Paul, writing to a young man named Timothy who's a pastor in Ephesus, he says this, people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. People who long to be rich, people who, who crave that, who move towards that, that's the longing, that's where they find their security. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You could substitute the word worship for the worship of money, for the pursuit of money. Putting that first place, finding my security in that, is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, money isn't evil. Money's neutral. But when we substitute that and we find our security in that instead of in God, it is the root, Paul says, of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money, again, you could substitute the word worshiping money, pursuing money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And how many times have we seen that uh, just in our culture where people longing to find their security in money actually became a slave to money, actually began to worship money, and the thing that they thought would bring them freedom actually became their prison. And then it let them down. And it didn't deliver the security that they thought it would deliver. In fact, King Solomon wrote it this way, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And Jesus himself taught on this directly so many times. When it comes to our temptation to make a God out of money, he said this, no one can serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He doesn't say you can't serve both God and Satan. Why? Because money is the main competitor for the throne of our heart. It's so much more subtle. And the way that Satan attacks us, the way that the enemy attacks us, is not by setting himself up as the Lord of our hearts. He wants to take good things in life and make them God things so that we put our trust in those things instead of putting our trust in God. In fact, this is a great way to sort of gauge, has money become my God? If you would say this, whatever God's entrusted to me, I hold on to 100% of that. I, I consume 100% of that. If the percentage that you spend on yourself, save for yourself, uh, you know, uh, other than, you know, Christmas presents or whatever, but on a regular basis, if 100% of the money that comes to you is for you, it's very, very possible that w without even realizing it, money has become a functional God in your life. That is why we regularly talk about generosity around here. Like, I know you talk about generosity because, uh, you know, you, you got to fund the place, right? And you, you got to turn the heater on and we get it, we get it, we get it. Nope, it has nothing to do with that. We, we, were, we, we were a church for years before we ever had a building. It has nothing to do with that because God's the provider and, and we manage it well and we budget well. And so it has nothing to do with any of that. Here's, here's what it comes down to. It comes down to we teach on generosity because we want you to recognize God wants something for you. He doesn't want something from you. And when you worship the provider instead of the provision, that's how you do that is through generosity. That practice of regular generosity is us telling the God of money that Jesus is the one true Lord of our life. And we have security, not because we have enough, but because God provides. That's why we do that. So look at the gods in this temple of power. They all have one thing in common. The God of success, the God of achievement, the God of money, they all have this one thing in, in, in common. We can take care of ourselves. God, I, I know I should find my trust in you, but I, I have this opportunity to actually be in control, to take matters into my own hands. We can handle our own needs. We're in control of our own lives. The Lord's nice, but not really necessary. I don't have to pray for my daily bread because I have a pantry full of it. 
And the gods of success and achievement and of money appeal to our self-sufficiency. So, in the immortal words of G.I. Joe, the more you know, knowing's half the battle, right? Now that you know, once you become aware of something, the question is, how do you respond to it? Is it possible? Maybe this week you do a little self-assessment. Is it possible there's an area of your life where you're functioning like these new residents in Israel in 2 Kings who worshipped God but also worshipped the gods in whose land they, uh, they came from, the, the, the nations that they were a part of? You have several other functional gods. You're hedging your bets. God, I'm going to worship you, but just in case, I'm going to make sure this is going on too. There's a great story. God wants to be first in your life. God wants to be first in my life. There's a story that Michael Jordan writes about uh, in his book, and he says that he goes to a friend's house, Fred Whitfield, who was uh, one of his agents that represented him, and they've been friends for years. And they were hanging out at Fred's house, and they were going to go to dinner, and Michael Jordan said, it's a little chilly. Can I grab a jacket? And he said, yeah, go. Closet's down there. Go grab a jacket. And Fred waited and waited, and after a while, he's kind of, finally, Michael Jordan comes out, and he's got arms full of Puma gear. Now, Fred also represented another NBA player named uh, Ralph Sampson, who was sponsored by Puma. Michael Jordan, sponsored by Nike. Jordan goes back to the closet, brings out more Puma gear, and puts it all on the floor. He goes to the kitchen, gets a butcher knife, and comes out and cuts up all the Puma gear to pieces until he is satisfied that it is just shredded. Then he picks up every single piece, walks it out to the dumpster, dumps it in the dumpster, comes back inside, puts on his Nike jacket, and says, now I'm ready for dinner. And here's the quote from Michael Jordan. Hey, dude. Call Howard at Nike tomorrow and tell him to replace all of this. But don't ever let me see you in anything other than Nike. You can't ride the fence. That's an intense dude. But here's the point. You can't ride the fence. God doesn't want to be one of many gods in your life. That's why he says, no other gods before me. He wants to be first in your life because when he's first in your life, he created you. He loves you. And when he's first in your life, everything else falls into its proper alignment. That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 said this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. He will give you everything you need. You can trust that he will deliver on what he promises. Jesus doesn't see success or achievement or money as inherently bad or sinful things. Those are all good things. You were created to, he just wants them to be in the proper order in your life. He just wants to be first. And you were created to function best when he is first. That's how we're created by God. And when you put other things first functionally in your life, even when you say, no, I I worship God, but I'm also holding on to these. What happens is you end up worshiping those things and they actually become your master and you expect those things to deliver on something that only God can give you. So if you're looking for significance, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for a sense of security, you find those things in God and you seek his kingdom above all else, first and foremost, and he promises he will give you those things. And you need to know this. You were created by God to exist in loving community with him and each other. And from the very first human beings to every one of us, we've kind of gone our own way and said, God, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to do things my own way. And that's where we get this, this sense of struggle. We, we, we then turn to these other things to try to give us what only God can give us. And God is right there saying, look, take my yoke upon you. Come to me. Let's seek my kingdom first above all else, and I'll give you everything you need. It's about at its basic core saying, God, I'm going to put my trust in you. And so, 
If you've never done that before, if you've never said, God, I'm going to put my trust in you and live life the way that you asked me to, you're invited to do that today, and you can say yes to making Jesus the Lord of your life by just agreeing with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times I've walked away from you, and I thank you that you've never walked away from me. And so I pray, make me your son, make me your daughter, and then help me to surrender my life to you, to follow you, to, to follow your way of living, to make you the God of my life. And God, I pray for every single one of us who do our best to follow you, but oftentimes we get pulled in other directions by these functional gods that we are tempted to worship. I pray, may we find our significance. God, may we find our satisfaction, our security in you and in you alone. May we never elevate good things to God things. May we put all of our efforts into pursuing your kingdom above all else, trusting that you'll give us everything we need. And as we live that way, may we individually and may we collectively be a light in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.